Thank you so much for leading us in worship. Isn't it good to be able to hear some of the Christmas songs again and uh, enjoy this time of year? Um, we are, um, we're kind of right in the middle of it right now. Of course, we had you know, Black Friday and so on, and so now we're moving into Christmas for real, and everybody knows that because they all went out and bought their presents on Black Friday, right? <laughs> so I want to start a series of messages today called The Night Before Christmas. Now, most of you have heard that poem, maybe said it to your kids, have it memorized. The night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. What you may not know is that the author who wrote this was uh, actually wrote it back in 1823, and his name was Clement Clark Moore. Okay, so this guy was a preacher's kid. He was a seminary professor, and he really never even acknowledged that he wrote this. He had nine kids. He wrote this for his kids. Never really even acknowledged that he wrote this until probably about 10 or 15 years later. And of course, most of the traditions that we have around Santa Claus and chimneys and reindeer and all that stuff come from this poem. When you think about this concept, I mean, it's a little creepy, you know, this fat guy dressed in fur wandering around your house at night, breaking and entering, you know, and, and he knows if you've been good and he knows if you've been naughty. I mean, I always thought, you know, what if you come out of the bedroom, you know, you sleep in your underwear, you come out to use the restroom or you, you know, come down to the kitchen to get a snack or something, he's snacking on your food. So it's a little creepy, you know, but we get along with it, okay? You don't want to charge him with breaking and entering. Did you know that the Bible actually talks about the night before Christmas? It doesn't use those words. But the concept of night, basically, when you read in the Bible, talks about the gloom and the darkness before Christmas, the pre-Christmas world. 800 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And he goes on to say, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned the night before Christmas. The darkness, of course, is going to end when God intervenes in history with the great light. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, put it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's what Christmas was. Simeon, the old prophet who you know, came up to Jesus when he was dedicated in the temple, he said this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the light of sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That would be me and most of you. And for the glory of your people, Israel. Before Jesus showed up, I think a lot of people had totally lost hope in what God was up to. I mean, you look at the history, you know, they had been oppressed by the Babylonians, and then they were oppressed by the Persians, and then they were oppressed by, you know, the Greeks, and at this point, the Romans were running the country. And it just seemed like, you know, salvation was just something that was far off, like God had rejected them, and so on. And they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. A lot of people had given up. The night before Christmas was a time of pain, and it was a time of hopelessness. In his uh, book, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis calls this time always winter 
but never Christmas. And that's kind of the way it was, cold, dark. When the sun peeked over the horizon on that first Christmas morning, everything seemed normal. Mary and Joseph had made their trip. Jesus had been born, you know, and Mary was probably still, you know, you know, exhausted and sore from giving birth, and Jesus' face was still swollen and, and red, you know, and the animals around were making the noises that they were making, and Joseph was probably trying to get a fire going to kind of warm things up, maybe cook breakfast. And from that point on, things began to change. Didn't look at first like anything had changed, but they began to change. And the Christmas narrative, the Christmas story that we're familiar with is part of a greater story. And it has a lot of things in common with all great stories. And it's not just a story. This, was a, this is a true event. This is a narrative of Christmas. But, you know, there's the cast of characters. There's, you know, the, the history. We don't usually know when a great story starts. We don't know what the history is. But we figure it out, you know, over time. There's kind of like these, these dots that need to be connected so we understand the overall layout of the story. And the story makes sense. And then, of course, there's a crisis. There's a problem to be solved. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The history helps us understand what the problem actually is. I don't know if you've seen the uh, movie or if you watch the music. I watch it every year, the classic, you know, that um, it's a wonderful life. And of course, Joseph, the head angel, you know, has to bring in Clarence and tell him what's going on so he understands how to help George Bailey to get his hope restored. In most great stories, you know, things get a lot worse before they get better, don't they? Sometimes, they, in, in fact, usually in the best stories, they seem absolutely hopeless. Like it looks like nothing is going to change and that this person's going to die or they're going to be lost or something like that. And that's kind of like that in, in the story of God and what He's done. God made everything perfect. And human beings goofed it up, you know? In His mercy, God spares humanity, and He tells us that He's, you know, going to use us to crush the head of the deceiver. But the rebellion goes viral. It got to the point where God actually had to, you know, kind of wipe the whole face of the earth clean and start over with Noah. But then Noah's story ends with him drunk and naked in his tent and cursing one of his sons. And the whole nation eventually ends up in Egypt. You know, God has said that he's going to start over with Abraham. And then you begin to look at the cast of characters, you know, and, and their character, and you get some doubts about that. So they're in Egypt. They become a nation there. And then, you know, God brings them out of Egypt. Before they can even get to the promised land that he's, you know, given them, they rebel. They all die in the desert. And eventually God raises up a king, David, a man after his own heart. And he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. Well, then David screws up. He gets involved with his, you know, friend's wife, and then, of course, you know, kills him, kills his friend, and trying to cover the whole thing up. His son Solomon is brilliant, brilliant guy, wise, brings Israel into the golden age. And you think, maybe this is the kingdom that will never end. But then he gets about halfway through his life, and he breaks every guideline that God had ever given to kings. And the whole nation splits into two big pieces, and eventually both of them get exiled. And it just looks like it's all over. There's this darkness and sadness, you know, and chaos. And the cause of it all is contained in a little three-letter word. We really don't like it very much. We've kind of, you know, shoved it out of the vocabulary in our world. 
guy uh, that I once read a book, uh, his name was Carl Menninger, and he was a, he was a psychiatrist, and, and his thing was, whatever happened to sin? Whatever became of sin? And that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, why do we banish it from our vocabulary? How many of you think it's because there's just so much less sin these days that we just don't really even need to talk about it? I don't think so. <laughs> How many of you think, you know, that we can describe sin with nicer words, you know? Like, we don't lie, we misspeak, you know? We, we don't steal and rip people off and, and get drunk and run people down. We make mistakes. We don't commit adultery, you know? We, we have flings, we have affairs. So we have all these nice words to describe it. The problem is that, you know, when we misspeak or when we make mistakes or, you know, when we have a fling, all this stuff grows stuff. It has seeds in it, you know. And no matter how deep you bury it, there's something called the law of the harvest. And it comes out, this stuff comes out, and it creates all this chaos. At the core, really, sin is about self, okay? And self and all of its ugly little children, you know, self-importance, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-obsession, self-preservation, self-righteousness, all the, nobody likes these things. But it comes out of the whole thing in our world that people says it's not really a big deal. Self is, you know, important and people become self-important. But this stuff really is what has ruined so much of what we want to see in life. You know, and so then it becomes this, you know, me versus them. Them is someone different than me, you know. Uh, it's someone who stands in my way. It's someone, you know, who, who well, you know, may have less than me, but they don't deserve what I have, and so on. Somebody, you know, who to be feared, and someone to be kind of shoved away. And of course, then that creates all kinds of other problems. We live in what, what are called the headwaters of East Dufferin Creek, which means that all the Dufferins come from our area, okay? And this is the truth. You trace any stream to its headwaters, okay? And you begin to find out what some of the problems is, and where they've been polluted, and so on. And so when you look at the headwaters of all the chaos in our world, you find out that there's been oppression, oppression and slavery and lies and lust and rage and deprivation and injustice and racism. So when we see all these headwaters, we want to think, you know, well, is there a drain someplace so that this stuff can drain away? No, all this stuff has consequences, doesn't it? You trace the social problems in our world and go back to their origins and you find out that they come from the awful ways that people have been traded you know, been, uh, been treated. You know, slavery created all kinds of chaos and hurt and anger. The way women have been treated, it started too long ago to actually even remember. I mean, you think about it. Women couldn't even vote in Canada until 1919, uh, almost 200, almost 100 years ago. You trace any war, and it'll go back to, you know, the slaughter of people or oppression or racism or something like this. And when you add that to the unfairness and the unevenness and, and the degrading difference between, between prosperity, the people who have it, and the have-nots, the people who don't have it, you know, with the haves thinking that they deserve it and they shouldn't have to part with it, and then the have-nots resenting them for what they have. Now, here's the question. How many of you think that all these problems, all this resentment, this anger, and this hatred are just going to someday resolve themselves? 
That if we just kind of let them go, that they'll just kind of fade out of existence and, and so on. Well, that actually doesn't happen because generation after generation passes this stuff on. How many of you think that when anger and resentment erupts in violence and fires and, and chaos and all this stuff, that it actually causes reasonable people to rethink their lives and repent, you know, and, and, and pay for the damage, you know, and take a lesser role and say to themselves, I've had privilege way too long. Time for me to pass it on to somebody else. Well, it doesn't happen. How many of you think that if we took classes on on love and justice and humility and kindness, that we would become more loving people. Or if we just every morning would recite the grievances over the past 4,000 to 5,000 years that, you know, that we would understand our role in it and, and say, you know what, I, I just need to solve this problem. That's not going to happen. To solve any problem, you see, there has to be a proper diagnosis. <clears throat> if, you don't, if all you do is try to mess with the symptoms of cancer, it will ultimately kill you. Another, I had an older woman in, my, in a church in Pennsylvania, you know, who had terrible pain in her back. And they had all kinds of physicians trying to help her and so on. This went on for a few years. Finally, they figured out what it was. It was Lyme disease. She'd, get in, she'd gotten bitten by a deer tick in her backyard, and all this chaos resulted from it. But they couldn't resolve it until they actually got to the main root cause of it all. Now, we know, we know that hatred and lust and racism and, and hard-heartedness and selfishness and lying and greed and jealousy and pride are wrong. We know that. We know that they cause damage, you know, that they wreck our happiness. What's strange is that when God's Word diagnoses it head-on and says, it's sin, our common response, in our world anyways, is basically to say, well, I don't like that diagnosis. I want a second opinion. Now think about how this fits, you know, the, our 2021 COVID world. Most people, not all, but most people would agree that the threat of COVID is real. To say, you know, nah, this stuff isn't real, you know, it's not contagious, everybody's fine. That doesn't fit with the facts. It doesn't fit with the fact that this thing has pretty much shut down the world and jammed hospitals and emptied out stadiums and five million people, over five million people have died, you know. It doesn't fit those facts. Now, I've never seen a COVID. I've seen pictures, but I've never seen a COVID virus, and I'm guessing that you haven't either, okay? So we have to trust the professionals that they've seen this stuff, they've seen what it does and so on, and, you know, they're trying to stop this thing. Now, here's where I'm going this morning. God is the professional. <laughs> he made everything. He knows how we're put together. And at the core of everything, really, is, you know, we either believe that or not. We either believe that he knows what he's talking about, or we go out and we try to find our own solution. And we know that there's a mess. Everybody knows that. Everybody sees the evidence of that. Everybody feels the pain of that, okay? So how does Christmas change that, Really? very first reference to the birth of Jesus in the New Testament makes that clear, how it changes everything. Let's just read it. So if you have a Bible close by, turn to it. You know, Matthew chapter 1, or if you have your cell phone, turn to it in that. And we're just going to kind of go down through this passage in terms of this narrative of Jesus' life. So it starts with this, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, to understand the context here, you have to understand that in that culture, you know, to be betrothed, to be betrothed, or to be pledged was kind of like being married without benefits, okay? Um, so to even separate two people, in this case, separate Mary and Joseph, they would have had to have gotten a divorce. So they weren't together, but she was found out. She was found to be pregnant. And I'm telling you, that was a big deal, punishable by execution. Goes on, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, he was faithful to the law. He knew what the law had said about this and what should happen to people who find themselves in this kind of condition. So he's faithful to the laws of God, but he cared about Mary. He loved her, and he couldn't bear the thought of her being executed. Goes on, verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So you can just imagine Joseph. I'm, he's probably in the middle of a nightmare, you know, in this whole thing about Mary and this horrible decision he has to make. And then God steps into this nightmare. God steps into this dream in the person of an angel, and the angel specifically addresses the quandary of fear that he's in him, fear about marrying her. He's going to get accused. He's going to have all this stuff happen to her. And then also fear of throwing her to the wolves. And I can only imagine the relief that Joseph, you know, must have experienced hearing these words. Don't be afraid. What happened to her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, when the angel told him that the son that was going to be born, you know, was going to be the Messiah, going to be God with us, and, and he was to name him Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua, you know, he's thinking to himself, well, of course, you know, the Messiah is going to be a great warrior, you know, and he's going to raise up an army against all this chaos, and he's going to destroy the whole thing and lead a campaign. And Joseph, you know, probably would have gotten about this far in his thinking when the angel's next words began to register because he will save his people from their sins. And he's, think, he's thinking to himself, you mean save the people from the sins of the Romans, right? I mean, this prophecy of Jesus, imagine it coming, you know, when the Nazi concentration camps were full of Jewish people. Would it make sense, you know, that this baby, the Messiah, was going to come and that he was going to save his people from their sins? You'd think, well, he better save them from the Nazis first. And Joseph would have felt the same way. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. And all of a sudden, this angel connected all these dots, all the prophecies. Mary was the virgin that, you know, Isaiah had talked about. And this baby, Emmanuel, God with us, was going to come and he was going to save things. Now you think about the concept here, save his people from their sins. We all understand that, you know, the perpetrators, the people that inflict violence and hurt people, that they should be saved from their sins, right? But victims also, 
<laughs> are sinners that need to be saved? Well, that's apparently what's going on here. And that's why, exactly why Emmanuel, God with us, God the Son, Jesus, had to save from their sins. The core disease that infects every single person, that makes people inflict pain and also, you know, causes people to, you know, suffer from pain and to get angry and filled with hatred to the point where they can't get over it. And maybe the question for you and for me in the world is, did this baby born that Christmas night actually do anything? I mean, you know, besides fulfilling the prophecies, you know, how he was going to be born. I mean, did he actually do anything? Because it seems like sin just keeps marching on. It's like this big, filthy snowball at the top of a hill, you know, and it keeps rolling down and it keeps picking up stuff and, and destroying stuff and finally crashes at the bottom, claiming more and more victims. That's what sin seems like. People are as selfish and as self-preoccupied as they've ever been. So it seems like things haven't changed. So Two answers to that question, did Jesus actually change anything? Well, no, he didn't change things immediately because to do that, he would have had to have annihilated everybody. Everybody would have had to die. God forced his answer to sin and decay and pride and greed and hatred on us. No one would survive. That includes me, you know. I mean, I was raised as a pastor's kid, you know. By some standards, I suppose I lived a pretty decent life, you know. I, I went to Bible college, and I traveled with a Christian band for a year, and went to seminary, became a pastor, and I know my Bible, and I've never gotten drunk or high, you know. I mean, but see, I know how sin has affected and infected my life, and how it's hurt other people through me. I know that, and you know that too, because it's happened through your life. Now, here's something else I know. I need more than forgiveness. And that's what it's talking about here. Save us from our sins. And so does our world. Sin is addictive, you know. People, people who struggle with addiction to alcohol or drugs or, or porn or, or prescription drugs, they know that it's ruining their bodies. They know that it's, you know, hurting their minds. They know that it's turning them into liars. They know that. So they don't just need to be forgiven each time they get drunk or high or whatever happens. They need to be freed from it delivered from their sin. People who are addicted to hatred or racism or jealousy or sell pictures of their bodies online to make more money, they know what this stuff does to the heart. They know what it's like to trade your character, you know, for the highest prize. People know that anger wrecks your heart and it wrecks your ability to be loved. To be told you're forgiven and that's it. You got to keep on going with your sin. Good luck. Well, that leaves us in the mess, doesn't it? And Jesus came to offer something that is infinitely better, not just to be forgiven for our sins, which is immensely important, but to be saved from them, to be delivered from them. So sin has continued its rampage ever since, you know, Jesus was born. But there's a second piece to this answer. Did the baby Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the one who came to save us from our sins, did he actually change things? And the answer is, you better believe he did. Most reasonable people who would take a look at history and what it was like you know, 2,000 years ago and what it's like now, they know that. See, Jesus did this through the power of love, you know, not 
protests, not change or else, you know, not I'll have to make you pay. I mean, Jesus never stood up in the middle of a crowd and he had lots of them around him and said, okay, Romans, you've had it. Like, we're done. We're going to rise up and we're going to turn over your chariots, you know, and we're going to just destroy the Roman government because you've oppressed us too long. And now we're angry. Now we're going to make things happen. Never did that. Actually, for the angry people looking for a fight, like the zealots, and Jesus had one of them in his band of disciples, what Jesus taught and said probably seemed weak and ineffective. You know, what do you mean love your enemies? We don't want to love our enemies, we want to kill them. What do you mean that the greatest people are those who serve, you know? What do you mean deny, up your, deny yourself and take up your crosses and follow me? Crosses are for weak people. Crosses are for victims. They don't want to hear that. But those who follow Jesus and followed what he said about love and followed what he said about forgiving your neighbors, what he, what he said about you know, feeding your enemies and about caring for people who are broken, well, they changed the world. Let me just kind of give you a simple listing, okay? Back then, women were basically part of a person's property. Jesus celebrated them. Jesus invited them right into the leadership at the core of his disciples. You know, people, women loved what he was doing. They loved these gatherings. Slavery was outlawed. And that happened, you know, when a person by the name of William Wilberforce, nobody had ever stood up to slavery before, but he stood up and it got outlawed back in the, back in the eight, early 1800s. Racism was confronted. Because of Jesus, specifically because of Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr. had the courage to stand up against what had been going on in the South for years, and he died as a result of it. Children were valued. Did you realize that back in Jesus' day, children were basically throwaways, you know? A, a father could decide whether or not he wanted to, you know, keep his baby or just expose it, and typically it was the female babies that got just disposed of, exposed. They just killed them off because there was no value. Jesus said, you know, Blessed are the children who come to me. Don't forbid them from coming to me because of such is the kingdom of God. And they were valued. And the Christians would go out and they would gather these children who'd been exposed and left out to die. And they brought them into orphanages and they raised them. And now you will find that all through our culture. Children are valued. Poverty and injustice were addressed. They were. Because they realized, you know, Jesus said, you know, if you, you know, when you, when you feed somebody who's hungry, when you give them shelter, you know, that's me. And you find that it's been Christians who've basically done this. The followers of Jesus have gone out and started organizations that have done that. Human rights have been announced. You know, wherever the good news of Jesus, wherever the influence of the gospel is spread, you know, human rights have been, have been dealt with. Creation has been studied and not worshipped. It was, it was basically the Christian movement that allowed scientists to study it because, you know, there wasn't any magic to creation. They, they were able to actually look at it without worshipping it. Hospitals were started because Jesus healed people. And that's what happened. The followers of Jesus went out and they helped people. And that's where the hospitals, you notice how many hospitals are named after the stories in the Bible? Good Samaritan Hospital. You know, universities were begun because Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Universities, almost all of them were started based on the truth of what Jesus had to say. And love and humility. You see, before Jesus came, there was no value in humility. Love was considered for weak people. And all of a sudden, in our culture, they value. People sing songs about them. 
You look at, you know, the, you know, AA, Prison Fellowship, Red Cross, World Vision, International Justice Mission, you could go on and on and on. And wherever you find poverty, wherever you find need, you find that usually followers of Jesus are out there on the front edges making a difference. Jesus changed things profoundly. There's a very, very good reason why Jesus split history into two big chunks, because those chunks are very different. Jesus once said that humans love darkness rather than light. You know why? It's because what they're doing is wrong. You know, light brings color and light brings life and light brings clarity. Light just doesn't just expose what's wrong. You know, it, it helps us to see the faces of people that we love. It helps us to see where we're going so we don't stumble and fall on our faces. It gets, bad, it gets better than that. Listen to this. And this is found in Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And this is the fascinating part. That we might receive adoption to sonship. Wow. Because you are his sons. God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts. And the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And God has made you also an heir. Now, I'm going to be talking more specifically about this passage in a, in a future message, but if you get this, if you understand God's intent in loving us and accepting us and adopting us as his children, I'm telling you, it will wreck you. God has come, and the soul has found its worth. Remember the song from Song, O Holy Night? It says, you know, we found ourselves in sin and darkness, pining and longing for something different until he appeared and the soul found its worth. Adoption is very special to me. Lori, my wife, was adopted, and together we've adopted two girls, Kelly and Selena. And I'm telling you, the emotion and the depth of feeling around this is just powerful. Powerful. You mess with my adopted girls, whether it's Lori or Kelly or Selena, you know, you hurt them, you dismiss them, you trash talk them, you'll be in trouble because I am fiercely protective of them. And they are not just kind of mine, they are mine because they've been adopted. They're heirs, they're part of my family, they took my name. And Paul goes on to talk about the intimacy of this, you know. We have Jesus' spirit in us, the spirit of Jesus. Remember how Jesus called out from the, from the cross and said, Abba, Father. He called out to Jesus, you know, from the garden. He says, Abba, Father, can I, can I find another way? And it was Daddy. It's the intimacy of that relationship with his Father. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, waiting, watching until he appeared and the soul found its worth. And I'm telling you, it's in Jesus that your soul finds its worth. You know it, right? That, you know, something is only as valuable, the, the price of something is only what somebody's willing to pay for it. And it says here that God sent his son, infinitely valuable, so that we could be saved so that we could be, you know, 
his children so that we could be loved and accepted. And I don't know what your self-worth is, where it stands. I don't know what, how you see it. There are parents who basically trash their kids' self-worth. They tell them that they're stupid. They tell them that they're, they're worthless. And you need to know that that is absolutely not true. Not when God tells us that he would send his son to pay for us and redeem us. It's an insult to, to the cross. It's an insult to Christmas. It's an insult to God to imply to somebody that they have no worth. They are, have infinite worth. Sometimes we are told that we have worth by our parents, but, you know, as we go through life, you know, it's kind of like somebody puts a leak in that tank, you know, because our parents affirm our worth, but then we step out into a world system where it basically says, you know, the theory of evolution says basically, well, you're not precious or important. You just kind of crawled off the pond, you know, and you survived when the other germs didn't. There's no value in that. Some of us stepped into the cruelty of high school where we were made every single day of our lives to make us feel like we were at the bottom of the heap, that we had no worth to anybody, and it was reinforced. Sometimes we marry somebody, you know, and a spouse just puts us down and trashes us and degrades us. Sometimes we do things to ourselves. We sell ourselves short, sell ourselves off cheap. The highest bidder, you have worth. And because of Jesus, because of Christmas, the soul finds its worth. The night before Christmas. And it's into this darkness, this gloom, this horrible, murky place, the night before Christmas, that on Christmas morning, God said, I love you. I want you. In fact, I love you so much, I choose you, and I want to adopt you as my child. What's not to like and love about that? But you see, it always gets placed in our hands. Always gets placed in our hands. We have to choose. He chose us, but we have to say yes. And this morning could be the time when you just need to say yes. You've known about this, but you've never said yes. And as we close this morning, you may want to pray and just say yes to God. Let him adopt you. Let him love you. And let him fill your soul with worth. Let's pray. It's hard for us to believe, God, that in all the other things that go on in eternity and the angels and all the other beings in this world and all the stars in the sky and the universes and everything that exists, that you would care about us, that you would know our name, and that you would value us enough to send your son for us, that we are, in the strangest sense of the word, worth Christmas. And so we accept your evaluation of us, Lord, not the world systems. We accept the fact that we are valuable in your sight, and that you want to bring us to yourself and adopt us, not to shame us and kick us around, because you don't abuse children, but to receive us as your sons and your daughters. And in this moment, we simply say, yes, adopt me. Bring me into your family. Make me new. 
and save me from my sin. Amen.